We're in the book of Acts. We have been in the book of Acts for some time. And we'll be, Andy said something to me, he said, we're going to be in the book of Acts until Acts is in us. I think that's a really good way to think about it. There's so much in there that we've got to intuit. I don't even know if that's a word, but it's got to get inside. It's got to live and breathe. It's not just got to be a nice history story. I mean, that's what the book of Acts is, kind of. Dr. Luke, an erudite man of letters, wrote what happened once Jesus ascended back into heaven. He lived, he died, he was crucified, he rose again, he went up into heaven. Then the Holy Spirit comes back at Pentecost. And then we have the church. Us. A few thousand years later. And Luke basically just talks about what's been happening. So we're going to be looking at the book of Acts today, near the beginning, just about what the early church did. I always find myself smirking when I hear the word early church. Because if there's one thing churches are never... It's early. <laughs> there you go. We'll try. So um, on the screen in a second, we'll be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 45 to 47. There they are. Um, I'm going to leave that up pretty much for the whole time, uh, although we will reference other places as well. So they sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So there you go. That's the early church. And that has become kind of a model for lots of people over the ensuing couple of thousand years. Now, my personal theology, I think everybody has a personal theology, right? Beyond what we kind of believe when we first met Jesus, when we first said yes, when we first decided that this was the right thing to do, when the Holy Spirit first kind of nudged you and said, you know, this is for you, we then develop our own theology. And most of us, it actually comes from just one or two verses in the Bible, and that becomes our kind of touchstone verses for the rest of everything that we do. I'm going to read you a few of mine, or refer to them, and you'll probably get where I'm coming from quite quickly. My go-to verses are mostly from Jesus. I never had one of those Bibles where Jesus' verses were in red. It kind of made out that the rest of it wasn't as important. So I think it's all red, basically. It's all comes from God. Treat it that way. Um, but you've got the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, for those of you who don't know, is so-called because Jesus went up a mount and gave a sermon. So I just thought I'd clear that up for you before we start. Um, it's probably more important and more well-known because it's all the blesses. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the sad, blessed are the... and so on and so forth. Jesus lists a whole load of people who should be blessed or happy, as it says in some translations. My favourite bit of that is blessed are the poor. Then we have Jesus again, Matthew 19. I'll say it again. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Then Jesus again in Luke 6, 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Then we have Amos 5, 24. Amos is by far my favorite shepherd ever. Because he had so much fire in his belly. I don't know if it was just sitting around in the fields all day doing not very much other than looking at sheep. But whatever happened, he had plenty of time to spend listening to God. And he didn't have to deliver. If you, have, if, you, if you want to hear somebody having a right good old rant, read Amos. That doesn't get you fired up and ready. It's going to 
you know, put a placard up and march somewhere, then nothing will. One of the, his famous bits, Amos 5.24, Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. So you might be beginning to spot my theme here. Luke 12, 22 to 23, or 33, all about treasure in heaven, lilies and the like. You'll remember some of those verses. And then we come to this bit. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. It's really difficult stuff. And yet, for about the last 2,000 years, people have been getting together in churches, kind of like this, and saying, you know, church... And somebody else has said, aye. Has it not got a bit complicated? And we're kind of going, ah, well, yeah. Would it not be better if we made it so much simpler? If we just get rid of all this stuff that we've accumulated round about church and just got back to the basics, back to the early church? And they've all said, aye, that's a really good idea. Let's do that. So they do. And then about 30 years later, there's a few people sat in a room and somebody says, you know, church... Do you know, I think it's just got a wee bit complicated. And so on and so forth. I don't know what it is about people. I mean, I, I'm, I, I know exactly what it is about people because I'm a person. Um, but <laughs> it came as a surprise to some people. Um, we are very good at complicating things. We're very good at taking something incredibly simple, incredibly basic, and then turning it into something hideously complicated. I was a teacher for... 12 years, I still work in education, and there is a jargon associated with education that if you don't know what it is, you're locked out, you're excluded. There are so many acronyms. And then they change. You know, there's just a new one pops up and you're just supposed to know. There is no central repository for, I did say that right, didn't I? Yeah, repository for, um, for educational acronyms. And every kind of close shop industry is the very same. They all have your, your stuff, your jargon. The complications you add to it to keep lay people out so that it's just us that knows all about it. And we are very good at overcomplicating religion, very good at overcomplicating our own lives, very good at complicating the church. Anyway, the early church. We're just going to go back and have a little look about how they did things and see if there's anything here we can learn. Why do we find it so hard to get rid of all the stuff and the complications? We always want to accumulate more. Now, you might know that we as a family have been having really not a very good year, I think it's safe to say. It's been tricky. We've had people die. We've had lots of people. Pretty much nearly everybody in our family is ill. Um, We've also had some miraculous recoveries, and God has really done amazing stuff. But there's still an awful lot of sick people, and we spent most of our time visiting ill people or emptying houses and doing all sorts of things you'd really much rather not be doing. So it's not been a good year. And the cat died. To say that hurt the most. The cat going really did. That, that's the one that broke me. Was the cat dying? I don't know why everybody else is going to look at me going, "It's just a cat." But you know, you. <laughs> Thanks very much, Phil. <laughs> you got that? I, I, Phil just asked me if I need a moment to pause. <clears throat> Thank you. Did you mean that? Yeah. You, yeah. you did. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Some, sometimes you just come out with these things. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, anyway, to get back to my point, which is here somewhere, um, 
We've had the unpleasant task of emptying my mum and dad's house. In fact, we just got it sold last week. My dad died about four years ago. My mum passed away in May of this year. Both good Christian people, loyal servants to their local church. And uh, you know, both in their 80s, lived in the same house for about 30 years. Not the one I grew up in. The next one, I went to, I went to art school and they moved house. But I found out where they lived and wouldn't stop coming back. Um, so they had a whole lifetime's worth of stuff. And over the last six or seven months, my sister and I have been looking through all this stuff. And you know something? Most of it, I would say about 95% of the stuff my mum and dad owned, is now either landfill or charity shop. A whole life, two whole lives. Best part of how long were my mum and dad together? They'd known each other for the best part of about 60-something years married for a good chunk of that and then six months later it's basically in bins and that really has made me think an awful lot about the way I accumulate stuff I like things I like shopping I know it's not a male thing to do apparently we're not supposed to like going I love going shopping you know I will go on holiday and you can have as many nice views as you like but I want a nice couple of shops some good artisanal Uh, bakers or coffee shops or people who make nice things from local produce I love going to nice shops and buying nice things okay I'm a traitor to my species but there you go I do you know know, museums (laughs) museums this is this is my take on museums right I everybody else goes to a fortnightly place I go for the afternoon because basically all you need to do is go to the gift shop you don't need to spend the money and go around all the exhibits. Go to the gift shop because the postcards have all the really good stuff there anyway and it saves you a fortune in entry fees and you're in and out in about 20 minutes. Much, much easier. And you've got postcards. Uh, assuming you buy any, that is. So anyway, I like stuff. One of my, you know, we did the marriage course before and we talked about love languages. Everybody has love languages. Some people it's time. Some people it's affection. Some people it's touch. Me, presence. <laughs> I've stood up here on numerous occasions and said that. <clears throat> I'm just saying. <clears throat> anyway, um, Shelley, that's Proudfoot, not Percy Bice, um, coined the phrase, I just thought I'd put in a literary reference there just to see how many people are still awake. Um, she coined the phrase, death clear out. You did, didn't you? She she has no recollection of it, but Catherine Catherine was there and witnessed it. Now, a death clear-out is, basically, you go around your house while your children still live there, and before you reach your your dotage, when other people will start to make decisions for you, and you get rid of all the stuff you know your kids don't want. Okay? You basically just clear it all away. It saves them the trouble of spending the last six months of their life throwing it away for you. They just, just do it now. It's amazing. You know, just get rid of it now. It will make your life so much simpler and your children will really thank you for it. They really will. So I look around my house now as a, as a consumer, as a shopper, as a receiver of gifts. And I, I keep thinking to myself, why do we have this? All right, I want to do a little pop quiz, okay? Now this may be way too niche and this is just me. <laughs> or as, uh, hopefully this will resonate with one or two people. I want you to put your hand up if you have any of the following in your house. Okay? Be honest now. Nobody's judging you. Well, let's face it. We're all judging you, but never mind. We'll pretend we're not. Um, a bread maker. 
Put your hand over your bread maker that you've never used or only used a couple of times when you got it and you haven't used in at least a year. Excellent. There's always somebody. <laughs> uh, we got one because everybody in Warwick bought one at the same time because in Tesco's they were doing a special offer and they got one for about £45, which is quite cheap for a bread maker. At least it was whenever it was we bought ours. And uh, everybody we know has got the same one when we lived in Warwick and I don't think anybody uses it. Basically because it's got a wee kind of rudder thing in the bottom that makes a huge hole in the bottom of your loaf. And, you just, and, basically, and most of the loaf sticks to that when you're trying to get it out. But enough of bread making. Um, a fancy coffee maker that you hardly ever use, or more than one of. Yeah, okay? Clothes that no longer fit you. And now you're getting honest. Books you've no intention of reading. Okay? Now here's the tricky one. Other people's books you've no intention of reading. Okay? But you can't give them back. Because they'll ask you what you thought of it. And you haven't read it. And you don't want to lie to them because they're lovely people. They're so nice. They lend you books. Yeah? I've got a few lent by people in here, I'm afraid, that come into that category. So we'll speak later. Expired money off vouchers. Yeah, the reason my wallet, or we have a wee pile at the door when we leave the car keys, little pile of Safeways vouchers, or... Safeway. <laughs> wow, that co- where did that come from? Yeah. Do you remember Presto? Uh, no. Um, yeah, vouchers, which you only ever notice about two days after they've expired. Uh, power tools you bought for one single use, and they're still in the box somewhere. I've got hundreds of them. I've got an angle grinder. I used it once. And I didn't even grind an angle with it. Um, a tin of buttons. Because your mum had one. And it seems like a decent thing to do. But you've probably got no idea at all how to sew a button on. Huh? I'm getting the hurry up for Mrs. Wilson. A thermostat. This is one that we got. A thermostat in Fahrenheit. There was one in my mum and dad's house for years and I remember looking at it shortly before we were clearing the house out and there was this little beautiful thermostat. I said, that's been part of my life since before I can remember. I said, thermostat, that's really handy. It's a thermostat. I wonder how hot it is. No idea. Not got a clue. It was like 140 or it could have been 10. I had no idea. It was far night. No idea. Okay, it went in the skip. A set of china with three of something in it as opposed to the five or six or eight it was supposed to have. You're going to keep it anyway. Because somebody else you know might have the same set and needs some spares. Anyway, okay. So you get the idea. It's really easy to accumulate stuff. Sometimes even without noticing. What worse, we even have national holidays dedicated to giving one another stuff we don't need or want. Christmas, birthdays, these kind of things. But there is hope. There is decluttering. Where nice little Japanese ladies will come into your house and show you how to fold your underwear and tidy up properly. Who's, who's heard of Maria Kondo? Isn't she just marvellous? Just say thank you to your socks, but you don't need them anymore. Throw them away. Just say thank you to that thing. Throw them away. She's fantastic. She's wonderful. And she's so small. Um, not that's got anything to do with it. Uh, so decluttering has become really, really popular. We have Hergie. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Who's, any hipsters here? Hergie? Hoogie? H-Y-G-G-E. The Finnish, Danish, Scandinavian art of 
reading little books. And we've got all these decluttering things. So basically, perfection can be attained by wearing a woolly hat, sitting in an empty flat, eating avocado toast, surrounded by books and books and books all about tidying up. <laughs> and that's what it's all about. Telling you, our underwear, since we got Maria Kondo in our lives, our underwear is a thing of beauty. All fold neatly. Oh, oversharing, sorry. <clears throat> I did promise I wouldn't say that. She's going to kill me, but never mind. That'll be a while yet. Right, so here we go. Some basic principles then. The less stuff you buy, the more money you have to be generous with. Think about that. The less stuff you have, the more money you have to be generous with. The less stuff you own, the less likely you are to be distracted by it and you can spend a bit more time with God and your family and friends. The less stuff you own, the more you will value the few things you do have and you can buy better. And here we go. This is not an advert for capitalism, by the way. As you might have been able to tell from my earlier references to the biblical text about poverty and injustice and all the rest of it, my heart is very much Clyde's side and I'm a wee bit red left of centre. But I really do like something that's well made. Pete Gregg recently said uh, something on Twitter or Instagram or something, or probably all of the above. He said something, the best thing you should be saying to a carpenter isn't, you need to repent, you need to change your life, you need to stop smoking, drinking, gambling, whatever it is. You need to say to him, you need to make really good tables to celebrate the people that make things. And maybe buy a little less of the stuff we don't need so we can buy a, a lot more of the good stuff that people need. Support the local businesses, all these kind of things. You could keep people warm, fed and dry by buying less. Because you'll buy better when you spend your money. The principal benefit of owning less is that you will need less and you will be less driven to acquire, less greedy. Who's greedy? We're all a bit greedy, aren't we? You know, we love a bargain. I can't walk past a bargain. It's a trait I, fear, I, I share with my father-in-law who will buy like six leg of lamb because of our own special offer. You know, a leg of lamb, that, a leg of lamb that length. Um, or, you know, more toilet roll than anybody, even in the worst dysentery outbreak in the history of the world, will ever need. Because it's a bargain. You know, I'm so looking forward to clearing out your mum and dad's house. Oh, my giddy aunt, we'll have a warehouse. Um, they won't listen to this, will they? Oh, no. <laughs> <clears throat> that's, what, that's what happens when I go off script. There you go. <clears throat> But to be serious for a wee minute, <clears throat> the more or the less stuff you have, the more generous you can be, the more accepting of other people you can be. And most importantly, you'll have more room for the Holy Spirit in your life. I think sometimes when we become a Christian for the first time, when we say to Jesus, yes, and the Holy Spirit floods in and it feels like the best day ever, because it is. It's wonderful. But gradually, we seem to start squeezing the Holy Spirit into a corner. Imagine your house again but this time as a metaphor rather than the real thing. The Holy Spirit is in danger of becoming something that you keep in a box and stuff under the bed for high days and holidays, or you might get it out on a Sunday morning to look good with other people that are here. And the stuff that we accumulate in our lives can force the Holy Spirit out, because the Holy Spirit does not invade. It's not possession. It's living with. It's abiding with. It's making place with you. And he's not going to force himself into your life when it's not wanted. 
The Holy Spirit is welcomed in when you become a Christian, when you say yes to Jesus. It is not an invasion force. Sometimes we wish it was, maybe. Because that would mean we wouldn't have to do anything. We could just let Jesus come in and sort it all out, and then we could just sit there and do nothing. Actually, the Holy Spirit works in partnership with us. There's a really, really nice... If there is a thing that I would really, really want... And I've never seen one of these things, but I have it in my head, but I don't have the craft or the ability to make it. Maybe there's somebody here who can. Imagine a concrete sphere, right? But imagine it's broken in half. A bit like the Death Star when it blew up. Okay? You know what I mean? So it's grey, it's dead, and it's all broken. Perfectly smooth and round on one side, absolutely busted and broken and knackered in the middle. When Jesus comes into your life and he makes you complete, it's like there's a crystal sphere for the top half that makes you perfect again it doesn't take all the rough stuff and smooth it away it doesn't take all of that and change it into something that it never was in the first place but it makes it perfect again but you can still see all the things that make you you all the broken bits anyone can make one of them does anybody know anyone that could do that i'm serious really i think it'd be a beautiful thing to have concrete hard broken knackered Beautiful, crystal clear, transparent, gorgeous. It's just a lovely image of the perfection that Jesus brings. But he works with us. The Holy Spirit does not force himself onto us to make us something that we're not. He uses what God has already made, is already there, and makes it perfect in God's eyes. And the more stuff that we have in our lives, the more, or the less, rather, we'll have room for him. We're about to enter Lent. Now, I've not really have an Anglican persuasion. I'm too non-conformist for my own good, as far as that kind of thing goes. I've never understood Lent. If something gets in the way of your relationship with God, stops you spending time with him, stops you communing with him, stops you concentrating and and focusing on him, why just give it up for 40 days? Never do it again. Really? You know? I get the whole symbolism of the 40 days in the desert and all the rest of it. It's all good stuff and it's leading up to Easter and it focuses the mind and all the rest of it. But if it's that bad for you... Don't do it. And if it isn't that bad for you, why are you giving it up? Because you're just kidding on. So, anyway, stuff. We're nearly done. I've missed out an entire page and nobody seemed to notice. (laughs) Nah, there probably wasn't anything in there that you needed to hear. Okay, so. I just want to say a couple of things in closing. Not many times have you heard that. Having stuff is not bad. The early church did not go to a life of monastic asceticism. I had to look that up. Basically, they didn't just sell everything and live in a cave or a hole in the ground. Okay? They still had homes to meet in. They still had funds with which to be generous, to feed the poor, to help those amongst them. The 3,000 a day that's joined the church. They were still able to look after these people. They still were able to bake scones and make sandwiches for them when they came round for tea. So they weren't basically saying stuff is bad, you should have nothing and you should live in absolute utter poverty. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is the more stuff we do get, though, the stuff that's unnecessary, the stuff that doesn't add value or spark joy, if you've read Maria... Um, then that's the kind of stuff that's getting in the way. That's the sort of stuff that is basically putting barriers between you and what Jesus wants for you. So having stuff in itself is not bad. It's okay to buy good things because you're providing somebody with a living. Right? Like it or not, and we can go into all the politics of, the, of economics, capitalism versus socialism versus bartering versus all these kind of things, but we live in an economy where people need money to live. Right? And as responsible Christian consumers... 
We have a duty to do that well. Spending your money. When was the last time you prayed about your shopping? And I don't mean buying a house or buying a car or, or maybe even where you're going to go on holiday, but when was the last time you prayed about going to Morrison's or Debenham's or Primark? You know, it sounds kind of flippant, but actually it's really quite serious because there's an awful lot of things that your money does on your behalf once you've spent it. And you ought to be responsible about what you're doing with that. There's an ecology, there's an economy, there are people to think about and all of that. Pray about your shopping, see what God says. Could be interesting. So, here's a prayer I hope we can all say. And with this, we'll close. Father, we thank you so much for the things you provide for us. And we do, because we couldn't live well without them. And Lord, we do thank you that for the majority of us in here, we don't really go without very much that we really need. You look after sparrows and flowers and us because you made us and you love us. Help us to appreciate what you've given us, but to see it as borrowed, not ours, on loan till someone else needs it more. Help us to realize when we are starting to put our everyday confidence in our stuff, in our ability to keep buying new stuff instead of in you, that something's up. Help us to let go of our dependence on ownership and delight in being yours. Amen.